Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Last night, in the bathroom after brushing his teeth to get ready for bed, my eight-year-old son asked me, out of the blue, Dad, what's my life purpose? Great question. I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to provide his answer for him. All I wanted to do is encourage him to find out the truest answer for himself. That could take some time, decades. There's no rush. But when the time comes, I want him to feel loved, supported, and trusting enough of the universe that he's able to surrender to the beauty it makes available to him, that the universe makes available to all of us, so he can be energetically sensitive, so he can notice and receive the exquisite opportunities for connection and fulfillment that the universe brings his way. Well, what did I say to my son? I let him know how much he's loved for who he is and said, embrace your creativity. You'll know in your heart when you're going in the direction you need to go. That's the same answer I'd give to anyone, not just my son. How do we prepare ourselves so we can be most receptive to the higher forces that are at work in the universe? One way of looking at enlightenment is to say, it's being in that place where we are most receptive to those higher forces as we go through life. Assuming that enlightenment is a real thing, and there's certainly a debate about that, but assuming that it is, in fact, a thing, it feels like we may be getting closer to describing what it actually is in a language outside of any particular religion or culturally specific lineage, and mapping how to get there. This effort is the focus of my guest on today's episode, Gino Yu, who I think is one of the most fascinating people you can encounter in this already fascinating realm of transformational culture. Gino is an academic and consciousness researcher born in L.A., but now based in Hong Kong. He's known and respected by many of the people in this space that you've heard of, even though you may not have heard of Gino himself. I got to know him a few years ago during one of his regular swings through New York while on his globe-hopping travels, and he promptly blew my mind with his understanding of higher states of consciousness and the process that people go through to access them. I want to say, this show is a treat. It's also packed with information. You may want to listen to it more than once because there's a lot here and it goes by pretty fast. Along the way, we dive into digital technologies to support awakening experiences, psychic phenomena, energy healing, the stages of awakening consciousness, and what could be called enlightenment and experiencing the true joy of being. As you'll hear, Gino's enthusiasm is infectious. We also make reference to some of the people who have been on earlier podcasts in this series. David Sauvage, the empath, Ed Edwards, the energy healer, and Jamie Wheel of the Flow Genome Project. So if this episode resonates with you and you haven't heard those programs yet, you may want to check them out. Dr. Gino Yu is world-renowned for his work in consciousness, discovery, and leadership guided by his love of the arts. He has spoken at international events, including TED, the Khan Lion Festival, and the World Knowledge Forum. 
currently an associate professor and director of digital entertainment and game development in the School of Design at PolyU in Hong Kong, his main area of research focuses on the application of media technologies to cultivate creativity and promote enlightened consciousness. He also founded the Asia Consciousness Festival and has hosted Science of Consciousness conferences around the world. One day, a few years down the road, I can imagine playing this episode for my son to help him answer the question he asked me last night about his life's purpose. If I've done my job right as a father, he'll look at me afterwards and go, of course. Sometimes I can't sleep. I have a lot going on. It's hard to process everything that's happened during the day. So maybe I manage to fall asleep for a while, but then I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and I simply can't pass out again. I don't like the feeling that sleeping pills give me. There's a kind of grogginess that lasts with sleeping pills, a heaviness that messes with my day. So that's just not an answer for me. Evolver is the proud parent of the alchemist's kitchen, which we describe as a botanical dispensary devoted to the power of plants. We have herbalists on staff, trained and experienced herbalists who know what they're talking about. And when I asked one of them about this, she recommended a dream elixir from Anima Mundi. It's a liquid. You take a teaspoon or two on its own, or you add it to a tea. It's kind of sweet and has a smooth taste. And I found that it made my nights go more easily. It has a gentle, almost caressing effect that's not like any pill I ever popped from the drugstore. Anima Mundi Dream Elixir is an organic blend of a number of herbs used by cultures around the world to address insomnia, promote deep sleep, and encourage lucid dreaming, chosen specifically for the restorative properties on the hypothalamus, a pearl-sized control center in the brain that directs the body's most important functions. It includes ashwagandha, passion flower, kava kava, skullcap, blue lotus, and more. You can find Anima Mundi Dream Elixir on the Alchemist Kitchen website in the Sleep Better section. Go to thealchemistkitchen.com, there's an S in there. And if you have a question about an issue like I did, you can click on the Ask an Herbalist link to find out what herbal remedy might be right for you. Or stop by our spot in Manhattan at 21 East 1st Street and talk to one of our herbalists in person. Say you heard about The Alchemist Kitchen here on the Evolver podcast and get 10% off any herbal remedy. So, Gino, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. What's the most exciting thing you're doing right now? Well, obviously, this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, you get 10 points. (laughs) All right. Um, um, the other thing I'm doing, which is really exciting, is, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, I'm uh, bringing my kids. I have uh, four kids, of which three are nearing college age, 18, 16, and 15. And we're on this uh, tour of the United States visiting all the different universities. You know, that's the context of it. But what it, what it really is, is it's a, kind of a coming-of-age trip with dad. And so I don't know if you know, but a lot of earlier cultures, I guess in your culture, you have like bar mitzvahs and, you know, Mm -hmm. if we're in uh, Borneo, you'd have to kill someone. (laughs) You know, they have these, you know, coming of age rites and everything. And so this is kind of a exploring emergence with daddy kind of trip that we're visiting the, the schools, but then we're also kind of having a 
an emergent event adventure together, which relates to this evolving caravan project that I'm working on as well, well too. Well, that's really exciting. So when you look now at the horizon of what's happening in the world of consciousness, the different activities that are happening, the research that's happening, yeah. the level of interest, where do you see it going in the next five years? Well, the exciting thing about this area right now is uh, kind of, a, I give a talk about uh, what people perceive reality to be. And uh, 5,000 years ago, your understanding of reality was based upon where you lived in the world and the religious tradition in that region. And then at that time, all the local religions had a functional mythology, right? So there was the cosmological function, the pedagogical function, the societal function, and the mystical function. Um, and since, say, 2,500 years ago or so with Aristotle, there was a split. You know, the material domain became science, and then this kind of mental cultural domain became kind of culture, religion, etc. And the exciting thing in the last 10 years or so is with uh, neuroscience, real-time biometrics, quantified self, and with interactive media, there's a reconvergence. And so um, with video games and interactive media technology, I can in virtual reality, I can create a, an experience that engages uh, the psyche uh, and the mind, and then by seeing how you respond and how your physiology responds, I can start getting a sense of what your belief system is and what your worldview is and how the symbols from the experience influence how you feel and how you think. And so there's, there's a reconvergence of that, which is really exciting. You can see from the data yeah. what somebody's worldview is? Well, you can. Well, I know what the stimuli is, and so I, I know what the images are, et cetera. And then I can see the, the selections that they make. And then I can see how the physiology responds. So can you give an example of that? Well, so simple experiments that they've done with EEG is I can show you, <laughs> especially someone like you, I can show you a bunch of pictures of, say, women. <laughs> and then I can determine... Uh, uh, you know, through your own feedback, which ones you think are kind of attractive or not. Um, and then I can see what's going on in your brain while you're processing these. And then I can show you another image. And then just by looking at your brain signature, I can tell you whether you think she's hot or not. Really? Yeah. So there's no way that I could, I could, I could fake it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes well, you, you got to fake it. You could say, hey, you know, <laughs> no, I'd, you know, but... Uh, Mm -hmm. So, although our belief systems may be completely different, the underlying physiological mechanisms are similar. And so, the neat thing about kind of this quantified self and kind of all this uh, real-time EEG and, you know, they're looking at, there are some projects looking at kind of real-time low-cost, you know, fMRI and there's direct current stimulation, there's magnetic stimulation, ultrasound, transcranial ultrasound, all these ways of not only extracting data, but then kind of tapping different parts of the brain. All of these things are getting more and more affordable, and they allow for uh, objective measures. And so when you start to do those kinds of measurements, what's the most interesting thing to you about what you can pull out of that? For me, the main thing is uh, having objective measures. 
And so all a lot of this stuff really started, you know, with the long-term meditators, Richard Davidson's work. And here in New York, there's a Zoran Josipovich who's looking at, uh, and, you know, Judd Brewer nearby as well, too. And there's a growing community of people that are kind of studying these kind of long-term meditators and what happens to their brain in terms of the uh, prefrontal cortex thickening and, and how stimulation influences them. And so this now allows us to have, uh, potentially have objective measures of how different meditative practices, mindfulness, et cetera, influence how you process the experience of the moment, how the brain processes the experience of the moment. And once you can see that in the data, you're in a position where you can begin to replicate it through different techniques in different ways? Potentially. And so there's stimulation. So there, there's this whole domain now of uh, transformational technologies and consciousness hacking. And so there's Mikey Siegel, who'd be great for your show, you know, who's got this movement. They're just looking at these different areas and creating technologies you know, for the inner dimensions of life. And then uh, there's... Um, Jeffrey Martin and Nicole Bradford that have this uh, TransTech 200. Every year they publish a list and they do this TransTech conference as well too, which brings uh, people together in interactive media, quantified self, etc. And there, there are just a lot of different approaches towards how do we use technologies for the inner dimensions of life. And the challenge for this and the exciting thing is if I, I'm right now grabbing a can but if I point at this, and, you, and what do you see when I point at this? I see a can. Yeah, and so if I say a can, you you know what I mean, because in the material world, you know, we have objective measures. I ha I'm having an experience of this can right now. You're having an experience of this can. You're also having an experience of this can, and we can talk about the can because we have a collective experience. But Ken, if I said to you right now, Ken, I love you, man. What the hell does that mean? How do I know that my understanding of love is the same as yours? You know, in the can, I can say, well, this is like this, which is different from this. I'm just pointing at another can, and now I'm pointing at a bottle, which is different, and we have a shared experience of this. But if I say, I love you, Ken, what does that mean? Where do we attach the semantics of something like love, which is an inner experience? So can you do a brain scan that effectively tells you what it means? Well difficult right now. And so part of what we're, one of the interesting areas right now is looking at objective measures for inner experience. So clearly, if I showed you something, and this is a simple experiment that you can do, but in a video game or something like that, surprise, you know, so what do all emotions mean, right? Like, what does sadness mean? You know, is there, a, is there a biometric signature for sadness or for anger or for any of these inner, inner states? And that's challenging. We obviously say, hey, you know, from a person observing another person and through empathy, I can say, hey, oh, you seem kind of happy right now or you seem kind of sad. And that's just me projecting based upon my experiences of, you know, my perception of you. But what are the objective measures for that? And so surprise is obviously an easy one. And it's something that we can create in a computer. If I just went, boo. Ah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there was a jump, <laughs> et cetera. And so, uh -huh. you know, your heart rate probably went up, et cetera. And so, so there's an objective measure for that, right? And it, it's, you're having an experience. Different people may experience it differently, but is there a, a signature? If you look at, you know, A, there are going to be brain patterns that change. The heart rate is going to change. So things that 
uh, influenced from the nervous system and things that influenced from the biochemistry of the whole endocrine system, all of those are going to change at different rates. And so there are, are there unique signatures for different emotions and different inner experiences. And so now the ability to measure all of this stuff in real time and create experiences to in, potentially induce these kind of experiences uh, is a, a fun, exciting area. And where might that lead beyond simply like an emotional state? Are there other aspects of consciousness? Are there other states of consciousness that can be more carefully documented in this way and understood in this way by understanding the physiology? Challenging. That's challenging. We can explore that. And there are people like uh, Frank Eckenhofer or uh, there's a guy in South America. Um, A lot of work that's doing like what's going on in the brain in altered states, ayahuasca, you know, these kind of things. And there is work in that area. But the challenge is whatever their experience is, it's difficult because uh, they're having a unique first-person experience. And even if somebody does the same chemicals, they may have a completely different experience based upon their own autobiographical history and their own biochemistry. So what is it about the objective measurement of these states that you find most exciting? Where does it, where do you feel that it's going to lead? Well, it allows us to at least begin to talk, it allows science to begin to explore that and to talk about it. The challenge that we've had right now, and this is another area, is that if you look at most of science, uh, it's all based upon third-person research methodologies. And so third-person means I take the materials, I have do an experiment, and then that gives me an experience. I tell you how I did the the experiment, you do the experiment, then you had the experience, and once both you and I have had the experience that you know anyone can do, it's verifiable. And you know, that we call true, you know, science. And they, yeah, looks like, you know, hey, we measured this from the black hole too, and I guess it must be, you know, independently verified. And so there is that, which is kind of what we call a third person. It's objective, measurable, anyone, whether it's an adult, a kid, anyone around the world can do it. But what we're finding related to personal development is certain things happen um, related to the amount of inner work that you've done. What, is, what do you mean by inner work? You know, meditation, you know, mindfulness. And this is more kind of uh, Eastern approach, you know, focus on breath, you know, this kind of looking at the qualities of phenomenology um, and in a, in a very detailed kind of way. And so I'm kind of jumping way ahead of myself, though. But when you get a lot of people that have done a lot of inner work together and you get them working together, interesting things happen. Like what? Well, coincidences, synchronicities, you know, highly improbable things uh, just happening in a way that you almost expect them to happen. You almost expect them to happen because you've had them happen before and you think, oh, they're gonna, this is something that's going to happen again, you assume, on some level. You feel like, well, I've been in the Burning Man-like experience, synchronicities will just start to pop up. You find yourself in a kind of flow. The sum of the last 15 years of my work has been this kind of five-stage model for personal development. And uh, a lot of the talks that I give around the world today 
are on, uh, there's a talk I give on kind of personal development, mental health, and human potential. So personal development is your classic, you know, kind of a Piaget child development through kind of a Claire Graves or a Cowan Wilbur, Don Beck, Spiral Dynamics kind of kind of development and shifting of worldview based upon experience. Mental health is what happens when things go awry, you know, whether trauma, post-traumatic stress, you know, all of these things, you know, skew the mind-body relationship and, you know, psychosis, bipolar disorder, all of these things are just something in thought and the way that I frame and perceive the world heavily regulates my emotional, the affect, and I have no, there's, there's what's happening here. In the <laughs> just, body, in, in the, the body. body. You can feel it. what's happening, what's coming from thought. And if I can't tell the difference, the influences of what's coming from thought versus what's coming from the moment through the senses, uh, and if there's strong emotion attached to the symbols, um, that's arguably where arguments and conflict arise and that's arguably where obsessive, you know, all of these things that high energy tied to attachment to symbol leads to... Uh, it's the challenging emotional situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. how people function in modern society. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of this uh, mental health part. And then the uh, human potential, if you can kind of pass through all of that and stay grounded, um, I've been scouring the world uh, looking for people with uh, special abilities. Special abilities. What yeah. kind of special abilities? Well, I think you've... Have you interviewed uh, Savage? David Savage, yeah. yes. And so that's an example of one in terms of empath. Ed? Energy Ed. We yeah. also... So, Ed, yeah. Ed Edwards, <laughs> yes. We've so also are, interviewed him. There are a couple. And yeah. then there are a lot more in... Uh-huh. in uh, so areas like in India and in China, there are a lot of people that have interesting abilities. And they generally fall into three categories. One is uh, different forms of knowing. Salvage is an example of that. So as an intuitive empath, there are seers, remote viewing people. And so there's a whole spectrum of these kind of things. Medical intuitives, um, there are these kind of people. The second category are people that can influence people in certain ways. So healing, energy work. And so energy ed can move people. And, and again, the second person methodology is for certain people, he can do that. Other people, he can't which is interesting, and it relates from my, our perspective of, well, it's an open area and so of research. And then the third mm-hmm. are uh, people that uh, can move things in the physical realm. Objects. Yeah. Not just people, but objects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sort of a telekinesis. That kind of thing. Kind of a yeah. thing. Yeah. My main focus right now is on the first two different forms of knowing, especially in Asia, with uh, qigong and energy and, and this kind of thing. But this is all kind of more on the esoteric side of things. But research in that space, and, and part of uh, the exciting thing with some of the work that we're doing with like Peter Fenwick mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in the UK are identifying people that have abilities. There's a, a, a gentleman in Monaco uh, named uh, Alan Forget that can kind of 
you can sit with you and you'll say, are you ready? And then he'll say, you'll say you're ready. And then he does something and then either the room will fill with light, he'll go invisible, or you know, he's able to mess with your phenomenology in some way, which is kind of in the second category. And what we're doing is we're looking at what's going on in his brain and what's going on in the other person's brain while they're doing something like this. So when you say you're looking at into their brain, you're moving them, you're doing some kind Hooking of... Hooking them up by EEG yeah. and then designing experiments around that. And we're designing protocols for this. And it's, uh, again, uh, part of this too is looking at second person experience is, um, it's kind of the analogy again, especially related to inner work, is it's kind of like jazz. You know, if you get four top jazz musicians and you put them in a room and you get them together, you're gonna get amazing jazz. And if you get four people that have just picked up their instruments or, you know, just learning how to play and you put them in the same room, you're going to get crappy jazz. And so this inner work, you know, how do you, and there's a lot of work that's happening in, in, in China, you know, underground in this area as well, too. Uh, I organize a conference called Consciousness, Science, Technology, and Society that happens in China. Um, and then we're a lot of really interesting people show up for that. So you come to this as an academic in your background. Yeah. So you understand how you, the process of developing the right kinds of protocols in a lab to study this at a high level. You can tell me a little bit about the, the creation of the, of the protocols or of the, the way that you make sure that the, the research is rigorous? Well, and that's a challenging thing, again, because uh, one of the areas that we're looking at as an open question is how do you design second-person research methodologies? And what do you mean by exactly by second-person research methodologies? So again, the thing that led this to this thread is the challenge of doing research with psychedelics. And so psychedelics, the re real challenge for it is that that's a first-person experience that you, know, you can talk about it and other people that do the exact same thing may not have the same experience, et cetera. But that's a unique thing, and the symbols that I see, you know, related to maybe you and your pet dog when you were two or something like that, probably somebody else, it's not going to be their pet, your pet dog <laughs> when you were two. It's going to be whatever it represented to them kind of in an archetypal way or something like that. Sure. And so that's a unique first-person experience. And that's, it's difficult, you know, you really can't do anything with that other than study individual people because you don't, you, their phenomenological experience of that is very difficult to quantify. In third person, it's easy because that's just science. You, you, you do it, you can have a, a similar experience, you know, in, in the mature world. Second person is just us. And the interesting thing about second person experience too is that, uh, it happens. So if you look at just yesterday, the World Cup is kind of the team. <laughs> if they played again, it might not be the same results. Probably not. And the exact same thing isn't going to happen. But yet, you know, everyone knows now you can measure it, I guess. It was a 4-2, you know, someone jumped on the field <laughs> in the middle of the game, etc. Right. And so everyone saw it, but it's not repeatable. And so that's a second-person experience. So the second-person experience is something that we are creating together in the moment. Yeah. That not only one person Well, sees, whoever's part of the group, like of the right group. now, the three of us. And so clearly, you know, everything that's said here, it's actually recorded. But things that are happening, like if someone came in the door right now, we would be aware of it. The three of us would be aware, right? And so things that are clearly happening here 
uh, that we're all experiencing but may not necessarily be repeatable. So, say, a psychic experience where somebody like a David Savage is embodying empathically the emotions of, a th- of another person, that's a second-person experience because it's the two of them. Yeah. And they both know it. They're both there in that moment. They both had this experience. Well, and it may not be repeatable. Too. And it may not like be if repeatable. David has something else or, you know, maybe he had a bad lunch or, you know, something was going on, et cetera. And right now he's, he's exploring that right now. So he has a unique ability that he's so, you know, come out of the closet with, if you will. Right. You know, just taking a lot of heat over it as well. Um, last week he tried to get some people that— uh, hypnotized him and you know what happens when he does this under hypnosis i think in the in the bay area or in los angeles he tried to look at what's happening with eeg can we do an eeg recording of myself and somebody else but these are just very simple mm-hmm. kind of not they're not rigorously designed experiments, but he's just trying to explore within himself, you know. And sure. so we, I, I call that kind of scratch research. Can we kind of just try some things out and see if there's anything that we can then design a rigorous uh, experiment to explore? Okay, so for you, though, designing that rigorous experiment, you're working with other scientists, you're yeah. working with other academics, yeah. and doing your best to create a kind of container that lends itself to clear results that can be examined, that can be shared with others? Well, These again, are, yeah. it's it's difficult because, you know, that's what you would do in third-person, you know, objective research. So designing second-person protocols is like a whole new thing. So how did you start in that direction? What is the first thing that you do that you felt that would make it, that would make it rigorous enough for you to feel it was valuable work to do? Peter Fennick, who's a dear friend of mine and a collaborator based in London, he's in his 80s now. And when he graduated from university, he wanted to study research enlightenment. And so he went around, and how can someone who's a scientist research somebody, you know, research enlightenment? And so he kind of asked around, if someone says enlightened, does that mean they're enlightened? And, you know, what are the, the measures for this? And he had a hard time... <laughs> gaining traction on that because, you know, anyone off the street that says they're enlightened, you know, I can try to start measuring you and everything, but, you know, what does that really mean? And so what he ended up doing with his career is he became one of the leading authorities on near-death experience. And because in near-death experience, you have people in a hospital, you know, they were brain dead for, you know, their heart stopped, they were brain, they were out cold, you know, I've got measures for this in the hospital, they were on the... They were in the intensive care unit, and, you know, this clearly happened. And a lot of the people that come back report life is a gift, every moment is a miracle, (laughs) and their quality of life. And, you know, there was a shift in their perception of of the world and their appreciation for life. Mm -hmm. And what happened, too, when he started interviewing a lot of these people is that when you go through a near-death experience— Dogs would start barking somewhere, clocks would stop, you know, people halfway around the world would get senses of certain things, etc. And there were all these really interesting phenomenon that um, were reported that he just kind of took down these reports of things that happened, which, and when you have like a something about the dissolution of an ego or something like this, messes with space and time <laughs> in an interesting way. And so 
that was really quite interesting for him. And he's been documenting uh, a lot of this stuff. And there, there's a whole network of people, uh, not only in Europe, but in the United States that are researching this field as well, too. For me, the interesting thing was when you had people going through an awakening experience, similar things happen. Similar in the sense of what in particular? Just things that can't quite be explained. Synchronistic phenomena. Yeah, lights turning off and other yeah. forms of knowing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. And so something, what is it about the dissolution of an ego, whether it's through kind of some kind of an awakening experience or through near-death experience that triggers that? That's a very interesting <clears throat> question. What do you think it is? Do you have a hunch? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was asking. Again, it relates to this whole human potential side of things. Right. And so part of the issues in the West here is um, you're looking for like a quick fix, right? And so psychoactives, you know, the whole MAPS movement, you know, and as tools, excellent and wonderful. But, you know, you know, I've met people who just do a lot of 5-MeO-DMT, et cetera, and just, hey, I get this experience, and yeah, I just keep doing it, hoping it'll stick. <laughs> Right? right, And then you have people that go through, they do ayahuasca, and they, they get a sense of knowing, but then they, you know, through the, the chemicals, they kind of got to a certain state, but the physiology wasn't really, the infrastructure and the physiology wasn't really there to sustain that. And so, uh, so that then kind of gives the ego mind a sense of, an artificial sense of knowing, which then can lead to turbulence. And what I mean by that is just conflict and, you know, these kind of things. And it, just getting back to the whole notion of special abilities again. Yes. You know, there's kind of a spectrum that we can talk about. You know, one are clearly highly creative people. Any freestyle rapper, for example, say Eminem or Lin-Manuel Miranda, and you just give them a couple words and they just start, you know, coming up with stuff. And you're like, oh, my God. Where are you coming? You know, clearly he's doing something. And, you know, where is that coming from? How are you coming up with these amazing rhymes and everything? You know, that's that's kind of those people we understand, society understands, and they're acceptable. So that's kind of one side of a spectrum. Beyond that, you have people, you have the one-offs. You have people like Daniel Tammet, who is uh, synesthesia. And so you ask him, what's the square root of, you know, some crazy number? And he'll start rattling digits and you grab a calculator and you it's like oh my god you're right how did you get it to like 15 20 digits you know how are you doing this and somehow their brains are wired differently so he sees numbers as colors uh, if you look at uh, like Mary Lou Henner you know people with autobiographical memory or people with photographic memory these are people that are wired slightly differently i i met one guy it was really quite interesting cuz uh he had the ability, he could actually hear and sense his own heartbeat. And then he was kind of freaked out because like, what, you can't do that? (laughs) I thought everybody could do that. And so you have certain people that are wired differently that give them interesting forms of knowing. And there are a lot of people that uh, I've met that different, but what they do is they see colors. And when they hear music, you know, they, they, they see a picture and they'll actually play it and how it, how it sounds to them. And so you have these synesthesia-type people. And clearly those, they have certain skills that they can do, and you can put them under the, 
magnet, you know, fMRI, and you can see parts of the brain that are active, et cetera. And then I just see these other people with different forms of knowing as just more people that are kind of on that scale, on that curve. So there's a continuum of abilities in the human potential side of, of different forms of knowing that then come, you know, intuition, insight. You ask a lot of these people are very common in, you know, just here on Wall Street. It's like, hey, I just had this sense I should buy this stock or, you know, oh, she was the one. I saw her and I just knew it was going to be her. You know, what's going on with this? And this is actually in a large part of the population in terms of these, you know, flashes of insight, you know, underneath the shower, what's going on? Hey, and then it just came to me and I fell asleep and, you know, the answer just came to me the next morning. You know, what's going on there? So on a continuum, you can see these as having a lot of commonality. And so people are, most people are just not giving the attention to those experiences in a way that will allow them to blossom or to grow in themselves. Yeah, you could see it that way. And if you look at, uh, you know, the, uh, the stories, I don't know what he said, but if you follow uh, David Salvage's history, autobiographic history, he was severe depression, you know, did ayahuasca, <laughs> you know, came back with some things, went to Burning Man. Hey, wow, it seems like, hey, am I right? Hey, wow, this, you do feel this way? Hey, you know, that's kind of his, uh, his path on that. And right. if you look at yeah. Ed, mm-hmm. you know, he's in church, <laughs> you know, playing with this thing. And, you know, and he, uh, and usually what happens is uh, in the development. Uh, and so part of what I try to do of looking at, this whole personal development, mental health, human potential side is really looking at, you know, so what's influencing the cells of my body? You know, there's the environment, which is this kind of studio that we're in right now. There are the internal processes, you know, whether you're hungry, thirsty, have to go to the bathroom, and the internal processes of the physiology, and there's what you know from thought. And everything in the universe right now is in one of those categories. So as an example, this health aid thing that you gave me. Does this exist? The bottle of kombucha. Yeah. How do, does this exist? Yeah. How do you know it exists? Yeah. You're I tapping on it. it. I can right. see it. And yeah. so that's coming from our senses right now. Mm-hmm. So right now, does Japan exist or does the moon exist? I mean, it's an act of faith. Well, but our understanding of it is coming from thought. Right. And so my point is that everything in the universe right now, you either know from thought from what's going on in your body or what you know from the environment around you, right? Everything's in one of those three categories. Right. And so when you're born, there is no symbolic consciousness. There is no notion of object permanence, right? You know, that's why peekaboo works, right? So where do you go? Oh, there he is. Where do you go? Oh, there he is. What happens is experiences bind symbols and thoughts to processes in physiology. And then those experiences create a sense of a separate self and then a sense that there are objects in the world and my relationship to those objects in the world. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
There's kind of this five-stage model that I'd love to talk you through that relates to people like Salvage and, and, and Ed Edwards as well, too. People with special abilities. Yeah. And so usually stage one is uh, your parents lay their conditioning on you. <laughs> The education system lay their conditioning on you, and society lay their conditioning on you. So initially, when you're born, it's the environment that acts through the physiology, and information goes from experience up to the mind and thought, and you're just trying to make sense of who am I, where am I, what is this, and A, I have a separate sense of self, and oh, this person feeds me, this person yells at me all the time, <laughs> these dog things, they bark and they frighten me, stay away, and so I start building this mental worldview, and you know, so just like they say there was nothing, and there was this big bang, and there was this hydrogen and all these galaxies, you know, consciousness became aware of itself, and then became aware of the physiology, and then, and then as I engage the world, I start building this mental worldview up to a point where, for most people now, it's my thoughts and beliefs now, I act from this mental worldview, and I keep pushing on it to learn new things, discover new things, and expand my mental worldview. And that expansion of the mental worldview and the development of the energy of the physiology happen simultaneously through experience. So experience binds symbols and thoughts to processes in physiology. And so as I start exploring the world, certain things I like, certain things I don't like, and these influence my emotional system, my affect, and everything, and I start buying into this mental worldview, and then acting from this mental worldview. And the physiology is always wanting to move to higher energy states, right? So When you say higher energy states, what do you mean exactly? Well, you had uh, Jamie Wheelover, so kind of the peak performance flow state. And so why do people drive fast cars? Why do they go skiing? Why do they go surfing? Because that situation kicks me into this state where I feel like I'm one with the universe and I can sense everything and I'm sensing what's going on in my body and I'm connected to the universe and everything. And then, and then you know, I do that for a while. And it's the context that kicks the physiology into a state. But the state relates to how you're breathing and how you're holding your physiology, right? And so the question in the inner work is, can you then maintain that state independent of context? And so stage one is you buy into consensus reality, the energy system's developing based upon my belief system, and I'm kind of building this, and symbols are showing up, and in a Jungian way, I'm just kind of projecting in my psyche, the anima animus is projecting into the world, and then I'm dealing with these things out here that's influencing what's going on within me. And so stage one is I buy into consensus reality, but I'm fragmented, right? And so, oh, there's my work, there's my family, there's my boyfriend or girlfriend, there's my hobbies, my friends, and, you know, there are all these different things. And what you're doing is you're doing these activities to regulate your biochemistry (laughs) into what feels familiar, And so my parents program me in a certain way, and I'm just kind of trying to move along that and trying to maintain that. And so, hey, things aren't going well at work. You know, I got laid off. Oh, I'll go make love to my wife or something, (laughs) my girlfriend. And oh, I feel great again. And okay, walk the dog, I feel. And so I'm doing all of these activities, and the mind is just doing what it can to help maintain what's going on within. Right, so stage one is basically conventional reality, as most of us experience it. buying into consensus reality. That's stage one. Stage two is you look at consensus reality and you say, hey, this is all kind of screwed up. (laughs) 
you know, I'm going to go all in on one thing. My purpose in life is this. And so when you do that, so any true artist, any true entrepreneur, or any true scientist, you actually have to go from the known to the unknown and then back to the known. So this is kind of the hero's journey, the, the monomyth. And there's a whole cycle that happens from that. Typically, you take all of the different things, different aspects of you that are spread out into your friends, work, family, hobbies, etc., and you kind of consolidate them and collapse them into one thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so if you're an entrepreneur, you know, trying to get your company going, you're just focused on this one thing. Day and night, you're obsessively focused on this one thing. And it's pretty for most people, it's pretty much this, the one thing, and then sometimes my family. <laughs> Right? If you right. talk to any entrepreneurs or artists, it's about that. And the underlying emotions motivating the actions are fears, needs, and desires. And what happens then is your whole endocrine system and autonomic nervous system becomes coupled to your perception of this one thing. When it goes up, you feel, hey, we got the funding and everything. Or you feel up. If it goes down, hey, you know, I'm being sued for sexual harassment or something. You know, it goes down. But you know, physically, everything's still the same. It's how you're framing things then heavily attenuates how you're feeling and how your body, the whole biochemistry of, of what's going on in, in your physiology. When you say physically everything's the same, you mean that your body no, is like, not, when you, yeah. essentially you are the same, but you're responding. No, what I mean by physically the same is like right now, like if I told you right now, I'm going to knock on wood right now, but let's say your son was hit by a car, <laughs> you know, we would probably, and he's in the ICU right now, we would probably stop this interview right now, and you would probably go address your son. Clearly, right. So, I mean, the physical situation... But physically, right now, we're just still in a studio, <laughs> right? And so it's the ideas of what they represent influence what's going on in your body. The idea actually... Physiologically well, triggers something well, in your body. Right now, you know, I, without sounding too crazy, but right now, your son, my kids, Hong Kong, my wife, all of these things are in thought versus what's literally physically around us. Right now, this conversation is happening in thought, but we're in a room, there's some noise, there's the curtains, you know, in the background, et cetera. And so there's this, and then there are the influences from thought. And so this conversation and this talk is happening in the realm of thought. And so part of the issue is that thought in your experience of the moment through the senses, i.e. this room, use the same hardware. They use the same endocrine system and the same autonomic nervous system of the physiology. But the issue is your awareness doesn't know the difference. It doesn't know the difference between the stimuli coming from thought versus what's coming from the moment through the senses. So if you can bring yourself fully present so that your autonomic is only triggered by what's physically threatening you, right here and right now, everything's fine. <laughs> and the natural state is joy. And so where is fear, frustration, anger, and anxiety coming from? Thought. Thoughts and beliefs. And so stage two is what happens is you go all in on one thing, and normally, because of the way that you've developed, is your physiology is in homeostasis. So it's always kind of keeping you in a certain boundary, and the energy system is growing from 
born to you're developing, developing, and then you're in these bounds. And usually, hey, I'm going to try to do something. Hey, I really want to do this. And then what usually happens is metaphysically in your own psyche, when things get become close to success, a lot of people will just shoot themselves in the foot. Oh, no, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I'm going to miss the meeting or whatever. And, and then, oh, okay. And then that keeps you in your normal pattern. And so what happens in stage two is you have to get up enough energy and discipline to pop through that. And so as you go up, there are going to be forces that are going to try to keep you back down, and you have to be able to pop through that. Then what usually happens when you have high energy in the physiology focused and open, surreal shit starts happening. And so what happens is in stage two, at the high end of stage two, coincidences, synchronicities start happening, and you realize that there are bigger forces at work. You know, the universe has, and there is a plan for you, and all this, etc. And generally speaking, that then kicks you into stage three. In stage three, what happens is you have to let go of the story-making part of the brain. And so this is the difficult part because the stories were driving you. And if you look at what is the underlying emotions motivating the action behind the stories, for most people, it's fear, need, or desire, something that's not accepting what is. And in stage three, a shift has to happen, which is a very difficult shift. And this, if you look at the Claire Graves or if you look at the Ken Wilber, it's the tier one to tier two thing. There's this whole jump that has to happen from, you know, green, which is the high end of stage one, into kind of stage two. And for me, what that's represented by is um, you have to surrender to the acknowledgement that there are bigger forces at work. So it really wasn't you doing everything anyways. <laughs> and, and what has to happen is you have to disconnect from the stories and the fears, needs, and desires, especially the desires associated with them. In this consumer society, we talk about overcoming fear, but we don't talk about overcoming desire. And when you let go of fear and desire, and you let go of all story, if you let go of all story, at the core of your being, at the core of everyone's being, there's an inner experience that's present within everybody. And the only way I can describe that experience with words is that right here and right now, it's good to be alive. And if you can feel that, joy, wonder, gratitude, compassion, everything comes from that. And if you really feel into it, compared to being dead right now, this is amazing. It's okay. <laughs> I'll take it. And so it. the challenge is how do you then decouple the influences of the symbols on the processes of physiology? Because stage two yeah. can be very much, in order to get so focused on yeah. your objective, yeah. you tell yourself some stories. Yeah. And, and you get really hard stories. Yeah. Hard stories. You get and then attached what happens usually right. is when people pop, they go into a high energy state. And the issue is that if I can't turn off the story making part of the brain, I end up in a positive feedback loop. And so all this surreal shit starts happening, and I make up stories around it made aliens, you know, whoever, <laughs> whatever things. Yeah, I get downloads from various yeah, beings. Yeah, yeah, et cetera. And then, right. and then I can't turn off the story-making part of the brain. I end up in a positive feedback loop, and then even more surreal shit starts happening. And then I'm not eating right. I'm not sleeping right. The physiology is not able to sustain that energy. And then there's a crash, which is the dark night of the soul. 
And so you're driven by the stories. It's kind of like a souffle. So the energy system is going into higher energy states, you know, driven by these stories and then even more surreal shit. And then if you pop that souffle in the belief system and the whole information structure supporting all of that in the physiology, the whole energy system collapses. The base of enlightenment is extreme depression connected to the innate joy of being. And so, okay, you have to unpack that one for okay, me. Okay, so if I fully decouple from all the symbols and thought from the processes of physiology, now it's difficult because that to do that is effectively psychological suicide. And the reason why it's difficult is it feels like physical death because it's using the same underlying physiological mechanisms that are keeping you alive. But the issue is your awareness doesn't know the difference. Right? And so if you look at paintings of the Buddha underneath the Bodhi tree, you know, he's got his fingers on the ground. You know, I, I like this. He's sitting in kind of lotus position. He's got his fingers on the ground. And then legend has it, Mara comes, throws all this desire. Hey, you can take over the world. The world can be yours. All these beautiful women, all this other stuff, etc. He's still kind of sitting there. And then all these demons come. These, these soldiers shoot arrows at him. They turn into flowers, you know, as they approach. And so he's still sitting there with all of these fears, and then he's still, still sitting there. And then Mara finally comes and says, hey, who's here to witness your enlightenment? And he says, the earth is here to witness my enlightenment because his fingers are on the ground. And while all of this is going on, his focus is just on those fingers on the ground saying, okay, this is real. <laughs> this is real. <laughs> just stay here. And it's, it's an exorcism because you're possessed by your past. And when all of that stuff gets relieved from your physiology and its influence, then you can see the world as it is, which is just this. So this is often what is referred to as the death of the ego in an enlightened, in an awakening moment? Well, and so the ego, the word of all of this, what I'm really looking at is what are the things that influence, what are the things that influence action and motivate behavior? Right now, hey, I'm talking to you, I'm crashing on your sofa right now. I'm very grateful. And so, I, you know, you have an audience here that are kind of in this space. The game I'm playing right now is, you know, how do we wake up the whole planet, et cetera. And I think a lot of your followers may also be in the same game. So I'm just kind of sharing because I care. I'd like to see everyone succeed. You know, the more people you wake up, the less I have to worry about. I appreciate that. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, that's the force motivating the action versus just being still. Right? And so what are the stories driving people and what are the underlying emotions motivating those actions? Because without the emotions, there are no actions. You know, no, it's tied to story. I'm a character in the story. There's something that has to be done, etc. And so if you decouple the influences of all the symbols on the processes of physiology, which is a difficult thing because your psyche and the ego is it's like liquid mercury. As soon as one thing falls, it'll just try to latch onto something else because it's trying to build the energy system in the physiology and expand in more forms of knowing. You know, people getting yet another PhD, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because the mind and the psyche wants to know more, right? And then that refines the sensibilities in the physiology, and there's a tight coupling there. The, the, the tight coupling there is, is what is the person's worldview or the thing that drives their reality. 
to fully decouple is effectively psychological suicide. And the reason why it's difficult, because it feels like physical death. You know, anyone that's gone through a relationship breakup where she was the one <laughs> knows what that was like. <laughs> and okay, so she broke up with me, but you know, physically she's still alive. You know, what's changed? A couple brain cells in my brain and a couple brain cells in her brain are just wired a little differently, arguably. And then that just changes. I can't even get up anymore. You know, the whole projection of myself and my identity were on this one thing. And when that collapses, it's going to try to find another thing or it's just going to wallow. And the, this hard thing, especially now, given, you know, the recent things that have happened, I think here in New York and Paris, the suicides is ba are basically people that don't know the difference between this versus thought. I mean, the body and thought. <laughs> yeah. And so they've identified so much with the, the thoughts that I'd rather kill myself than, you know, and so you're way disconnected from the innate joy of being because of early trauma and the way the energy system has developed around that. The premise is if you can bring yourself fully here, where's the stimuli? Every cell in your body wants to survive, grow, and thrive, right? So just to ask, when you use an example like a breakup and you're, you're so connected to that love, to that other person, to your understanding of yourself through that relationship, the idea that you shouldn't, on some level, have that kind of attachment feels almost inhuman. It feels almost like not respecting the beauty of the connection, not respecting the beauty of the love, which you could then extrapolate from that to say, my connection to my story, my connection to who I am, my understanding in the universe, that works so hard to achieve in order to be the person I am in the world that is successful, that is having a connection to others because of my talents, because of my abilities, that that's somehow inhuman or not like fully in your heart. What do you say to that? The question is, what are the forces motivating action? What are the emotions driving action? And arguably, a lot of that is uh, desire versus joy, wonder, and gratitude. And typically, a breakup is an extreme case because <laughs> at some point, there was love, <laughs> there was a connection, etc. You know, I have a saying that to know love is a prerequisite to kind of enlightenment because the first thing is, ultimately, enlightenment is can you surrender to this, this being just this, and be content. So the, for love <laughs> is can you first surrender to another person because at least another person speaks a language that you can understand, right? And so what's not accepting this? And so A, can I surrender to another person? And then B, can I surrender to this? To the universe, yeah. to everything. Yeah. And let go of the desire. Well, understand the role of this because there are different stages of development, right? And so... Most people <laughs> are driven by fears, needs, and desires driven by the stories. And so if you can fully decouple the influences of symbols on the processes of physiology, that gets you reconnected to the innate joy of being. And there's a vast reservoir of energy there. And then if you know that there are bigger forces at work, then can you start looking at things in a non-causal emergent way? And that's the mystical path. So we were talking about what happens 
in stage three moving to well, the next stage. Yeah, and so stage three, the end of that is can you fully decouple from symbol? You know, which is simple is, you know, you guys are able to do it right now, is because if I can let go of the influences of symbol, the only thing that's left is the studio that we're in and how your body feels, which is what it was like when you were a baby, which in Christian terms would be being reborn. And all of this that's happening right now, and I'm going to use Western terms now, is by the grace of God. And so what's your relationship with God or the universe? And what are the forces motivating the action? In stage one and stage two, it's thoughts acting through physiology into the material world, reality responding, which influences how I feel and how I think, which expands my worldview, and it builds up the and refines my energy system in my body. If I can fully decouple the influences of symbols on the processes of physiology, then information's back to this. It's the environment acting through the physiology, and then things just show up in thought. Hey, <laughs> there's this. And then as things show up, what are the underlying emotions behind them? And you try them out. And do they happen or not? And so then you just, it's like throwing darts against a dartboard. Initially, you're missing the wall. Then you're hitting the wall. Then you're hitting the dartboard. Then if everything that you intend happens, that's pretty good. Everything you intend happens? Yeah. How is that ever possible? Well, it requires deep stillness. And what wants something? What are the underlying emotions driving the action? Is it really possible to know that all the time? Well, and so the interesting thing here is emotional attachment to symbol will bias how you perceive the world. If you let all of that go, the sensitivity increases. And that's how, from my <laughs> framing, is how you connect to intuition and insight. And knowing without knowing how you know. Knowing without knowing how you know. Yeah. And so if you look at the autobiography of, uh, of Salvage as an example of going through that extreme depression near death, that's just a clearing of all of this stuff. From my perspective for him, he's built new stories. And so he's empowered and he's kind of driven. He's leader, empath, the empath experience, et cetera. And, you know, he's kind of running with it, which I think is awesome. But generally what has to happen around this time is you have to reframe your relationship with reality and what reality is. Rather than building more stories, it's obliterating all stories and really exploring intention and emergence. Not from a narrative, it's what's showing up in thought, what are the underlying emotions, and as I try to play them out, do they happen in space and time or not? Almost like a kid. And so if you look at Ed, Edwards, he kind of rejected stage one. You know, he just went from stage one in church as like, hey, I don't believe all of this stuff. I'm going to just mess with my energy. This is real to me. And he just kind of explored that in a playful way. And he's, you know, running off on his own. Ran into stage two. Based into his thing. And he's all in on his whole energy work. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's pretty much a large part of his life has just been honing his relationship with, with the energy that he felt you know, from that church experience. And I moved him into stage three. And then he's just exploring yeah. things. Uh, hey, will this work? And it creates some biases, right? Because of that, he's still, you know, he won't fly in planes. <laughs> there are right. a lot of these. He has a good reason not to fly in well, planes. Well, there are these idiosyncrasies, but these reasons are still in story. So he hasn't fully let go of the stories. But he's exploring things kind of in an open way. Hey, let's try this. Is this going to happen? Let me explore this. 
And that it's difficult to replicate. And he's kind of one of these one-offs that has spent his whole life, you know, doing this kind of thing. But the underlying mechanisms around what's going on is just really looking at kind of the energy system in the body. And in the East, if you look at acupuncture, qigong, and all of these things. And so stage four is looking at intention and emergence. And then stage five are these special abilities developed in a grounded way. So you develop these in stage two. When you pop, you know, a lot of people go high energy and then they develop these abilities, can't maintain the energy, they come back down, but they have some gifts of this in this way. And so a couple of the big projects that we're working on related to this framework, and for me and part of this podcast, are kind of these stage three to stage five people. And so stage one people, society is pretty good at, you know, dealing with stage two, you know, I actually, I run a workshop called Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and Self-Discovery. And the tagline for that is looking at entrepreneurship as a spiritual path. And so, you know, rather than giving you a set of beliefs like the old traditions, you know, what is your worldview? What are you trying to do? And then how do we take your worldview and then construct a path <laughs> towards you sorting out your shadows and all of this other stuff towards having it play out. And so entrepreneurship, you know, what are the stories triggering the emotions? What are the emotions motivating the action? And as you do something, how does the reality respond? And as the reality responds, how does that make you feel? And it's helping people understand that loop. And arguably the success of a startup company or a large corporation correlates to the level of consciousness of the entrepreneur or the management team. And what I mean by their level of consciousness is their ability to maintain presence. Can you be still grounded and centered and intuitive while the shit is hitting the fan all around you, right? We've only got two months left, payroll, we have to close the next round or else we're, you know, we're gone. You know, can you stay still grounded and centered and find a way through? That is the big challenge. Yeah. 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 So, well, you know what that's like. I'm afraid I do. <laughs> <laughs> and so there, that's kind of entrepreneurship. But, you know, you're driven by stories and, you know, motivated by the stories and the fears, needs, and desires. Yeah, stories that. often can be very useful, it feels like, when you're in that process. Well, and that's you, important for yeah. kind of these stage one, stage two. But then, stage, you know, when you decouple from symbol, the only thing that's left is just this. And then how do you access different forms of knowing? And... At high energy states, you know, practice, et cetera, training, you know, it's, it's about kind of cultivating that. The issue that we have is that when you pop, you know, stage two to stage three, uh, what happens is that most people that, that go through kind of a non-consensus reality experience, whether it's personally or through some psychoactive substance, um, when they come back, they can't quite function in modern society anymore because the stories that drove them before don't really work anymore. That's a common experience yeah. among people that I know. Yeah. yeah. That they, they have some kind of crack in the sky moment. Yeah. They see things differently than they yeah. saw them before. They understand there's a lot more going on than they had even the slightest intuition was happening. Yeah. And the job they have sucks. The relationships they have don't serve them. The people that they know in the same way, yeah. the people that they know think they're crazy. Yeah. And they find themselves sort of in this isolated place. Well, they're in this limbo space because they know that there are bigger forces, but they haven't let go of their stories. 
And so usually with people that pop, what happens is they start out as kind of lone wolves because their energy system is very sensitive. <laughs> and anyone that doesn't, any attack on their, on their worldview, their psychological worldview, is, is going to trigger their fight-or-flight response. Well, they're kind of in this situation where the old stories don't quite work, but they're finding new stories. Right? They're finding they don't match. Yeah, versus, yeah, and then they're finding communities of uh, people which still keep them in stories versus obliterating all stories. So how do you suggest that they move into the place where they can let go of the story? What do you do? That's the inner work. And that's where you have to reframe your experience of the moment. Not believe a new story, but reframe what you perceive reality to be. It doesn't sound, I mean, it sounds a lot easier to say that than to actually do it. Yeah. Is there a particular practice? Is there? Well, and so that's where each person is unique. That's where, you know, this project, we're looking at developing a, this global decentralized mystery school is around this. So leveraging new technologies like blockchain and then having people that have gone through the process before mentor those that, uh, that are just going through. And so that's kind of one of the big initiatives that we're kind of doing that. And then coming up with new processes. So this evolving caravan, for example, is a bunch of people that have done a lot of inner work kind of traveling together, uh, looking at collective emergence. So you're developing a, a mystery school yeah. that would enable, that would, that would guide people who are going through this movement from from. Stage two to stage three. Well, more in stage three. In stage three. Yeah, to stage four. Giving them the tools they need and the counseling they need to help let go of story across the board, not just a particular story, but an attachment to the whole way of, of giving yourself a story. Well, all you can really do is make them more aware of you know, how the relationship between their thoughts and their physiology And so this is where Eastern practices are quite interesting. If I ask you to breathe deeply from your belly, in Chinese we call it dantian huxi, where you're breathing from your, you know, the area, your dantian is the area, like a couple fingers below your belly button. And if I ask you to breathe deeply from your diaphragm, not your chest, just so that your belly moves like this. If I ask you to breathe deeply from your belly and try to feel angry at the same time, difficult. What's that about? Well, and so the way that you breathe relates to your emotional state. And then you're going to notice if we maintain eye contact, and if I bring you present here, just as you're aware of the sounds and the engineering coming back and all of this, just as you're aware of all of this, you can actually, while we're maintaining eye contact, you can actually feel your body. You can feel what's going on in your body, and you can be aware of breath. And as soon as you go into thought, you're going to lose awareness to breath. And so if you're always aware of your breath, you're always aware of your emotional state. Generally, you don't hear in the West people talk about be aware of your breath as a way to connect to your emotional state, except in certain kinds of mindfulness practices. Yeah, yeah. But in other contexts, you don't hear that so much. And so related to what we were talking about earlier, are breath and how you're breathing relate to objective measures (laughs) and emotions, right? And so... Uh, how do we then develop technologies to help cultivate greater somatic awareness? That's the main thing. How do you get people more aware of the innate wisdom of the body? 
Did you always have a connection to this kind of understanding from the time you were really young? Did you see things through this kind of more of a, I would say, a consciousness prism from your youth? Or at what point did you really start to hook into seeing this kind of opportunity that people have to get to that state of higher wisdom? Well, so that started in 1989. So I was a grad student at Berkeley at the time. And uh, our group, we got three papers accepted to different conferences around the world. We got a paper into a conference in Tokyo, a month later in Nanjing, China, and a, one, a month after that in Munich, Germany. And I convinced my advisor that it was cheaper to get around the world in one direction ticket. TWA had these as unlimited flights as long as you keep going in the same direction. And I ended up uh, traveling around the world. At the time, I was a starving student. So I only had $1,000 cash and no credit card. And I ended up traveling for like four months and uh, have an amazing time. I was in Egypt, Greece, you know, throughout Europe, Thailand, went diving in Micronesia, Japan. You know, I was in Tiananmen Square on June 20th in 1989. You were there. Yeah. And so, and what happened was, it was my first, you know, a, first of all, uh, you meet different people, different cultures, different backgrounds, different genetics, and something about it, you just look in their eyes and you can connect. And so what is the commonality in man? So everyone's born, everyone dies, and while they're alive, they have to deal with themselves. And so if you think about things in this way, the game that everyone's playing, everyone on the planet, you know, from kids to presidents, is, you know, what's showing up in thought how does your body feel, and how are things playing out in space and time? That's the game that's everyone, that everyone's playing. Yeah, at a high level. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that's pretty abstract, but it yeah. sounds. And so, what good are the common? And what is it that creates conflict? You know, right. you know, there are certain things like your parents can't talk to you about their sex lives, for example. So there are cultural taboos, you know, all sorts of things, etc. And so, what is it? And you realize that they're all psychologically created, tied to stories. And if you show people one side and the other side, that barrier goes down. And then at the very core, everyone's pretty much the same, right? So this hits you while you were traveling. Yeah. Well, you know, after traveling, it's like, hey, whoa, you know, I was reflecting. It's, what's going on? You know, all these people, et cetera. That was kind of the start of this long journey. Yeah. Have you had that moment where you popped? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? That was in uh, 92. 92. Yeah. I was still a grad student at Berkeley. And then a lot of surreal things happened. And then um, you see the light and everything. And then... Um, you had a popping moment. Yeah, I had a popping moment. You know, re, you know, a lot of this parapsychological phenomenon happening. Around that time. Yeah. And then, uh, and then our whole family at the time started doing Qigong. And then I got married, you know, I went to USC, helped to set up a multimedia lab there, met my wife, moved to Hong Kong. And then in uh, 2002, uh, my sister had a Vedanta teacher that ran a workshop and kind of she invited me to it. And then kind of I sat through the workshop. I was like, wait a minute, I know all of this stuff from the experience that happened, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago. And then that kind of led me back to, you know, where I was with all of that. And then um, even more surreal stuff happened, et cetera, et cetera. And then the final one happened in 2012. 
And to do that, that's where this whole stage three is. You have to die, psychologically speaking. And how did you die? Would you mind sharing that? Well, the energy system goes way up. So when you say that, you, you felt you were manic? No, just pictures start moving. You see dead people. <laughs> Things get quite surreal. Right. If you've read through uh, what happens uh, when you go through the bardos in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's kind of like that. <laughs> A little scary. Well, it's interesting. Interesting, and but then challenging. you basically have to surrender, and be fine with death. And is this something that you felt was brought to you, or something that you were seeking in order to well, access? Well, at that point, you actually have no choice. Many of the people who I think may be listening to this podcast are feeling a touch of something. They're opening up. When somebody can begins to go through that kind of opening, yeah, it can be extremely frightening. Terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. And the, the terror can block people. They get thrown into a kind of paralysis almost, yep. some people. Yep. So that experience for you could have been really helpful in the development of your, your understanding of these stages and how to work with people who are going through that experience. The challenge right now for that is in that moment, all bets are off. Anything understanding anything conceptually uh, doesn't really mean anything. And so there's a difference between knowing something conceptually and knowing it experientially. And then for the experience of that, it's going to be very unique to each person. And that's, again, very much one of these first-person experiences that are very difficult to even discuss and potentially quantify. Right, And so different people are going to be unique, different. And the key thing about it is just uh, understanding more the role and that, that thoughts in your experience of the moment through the senses use the same hardware. And when you get into high energy states, it's about cultivating presence. And so the one thing that will save your ass when you're going through this is just knowing the difference, you know, like the Buddha, you know, what's here versus what's being projected from thought and taking care of your body, getting plenty of rest, eating right, sleeping right, etc. So the mystery schools of history, whether it's Tibetan Buddhism, Sufi, Kabbalah, shamanic practices in the Amazon, yeah. they've all developed effectively as culturally specific ways to help people through this process. Is that fair to say? It's unique for each person. That's the question I'm trying to get to. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting to me about the work that you're doing is that you're able to bring a contemporary 21st century multicultural perspective, scientifically grounded perspective, to these experiences where you're able to pull from, reference these different ancient lineages, yeah. but also see what's happening to people as they go through this process of opening in a way that is freed from the cultural baggage of these historical processes, these historical traditions, and see it in a universal way that everybody who has that kind of awakening experience is going through, no matter what their cultural background, what their frame of reference is, that you're 
essentially no longer connecting it to stories, the stories of the Buddha, the story of Jesus, story of the Kabbalah. Generally speaking, when you have high energy, as if it were life or death, tied to symbols, that's a very dangerous place to be. That's a suicide bomber. That's the person that kills their whole family because that's what God instructed them to do. That's a very sensitive and dangerous realm. And the thing that will help to diffuse that, again, is knowing the difference between what's here and what's projected from thought. And the way out from that is cultivating presence and a surrendering to the bigger forces at work. And somatically knowing the difference between fear, need, and desire, and joy, gratitude, and wonder. Gino, I want to thank you for being with us today. Yeah. Where can people find out more about your work? Um, <laughs> well, we have this evolving caravan. <laughs> we, we, well, we have a lot of initiatives in this space, but um, the main thing is to kind of investigate this. And part of what I've been talking about is the personal process of this, right? And so if you're looking for information from me, that's the wrong kind of information. If you're in this space, and if you think you're like a high two, three person, et cetera, part of you wants to know more and all this and try to convince other people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, everything under the sun is in tune, but the sun is eclipsed by the moon. Thank you very much. As Gino mentioned, this past decade has seen something profound take place. For the first time since Aristotle, we have the intellectual framework and the laboratory toolkit for bridging the two realms of science and spirit. Religious experience no longer needs to be based on blind faith. And the case can be made that every human being on the planet can have a direct experience of the divine for herself or himself. It's a huge shift. One that, once it's fully disseminated and totally digested, will have a major impact on our society and on how we understand ourselves, relate to one another, and care for the living planet. Seen properly, it's a revolutionary moment, and you're a part of it. Thank you for showing up. I want to thank Gino Yu again for being a guest on the podcast, and thank you, too, for joining us. If you like what we're doing here on the show, tell your friends, share it, on social media, leave a comment on iTunes. Those iTunes reviews really are helpful. So thank you for those who have done it. And if you haven't had a chance, please just take three minutes and pop it on up there. You can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast, The Evolver Podcast, and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, on Acast, or on any of the podcasting apps that are out there in the universe. And our email, if you want to reach us directly, is theevolver at evolver.net. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album, The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by the human experience, Sunu, from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond 
go check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.